Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. No one can be sure how many people left Vietnam in the aftermath of a protracted war that finally ended with North Vietnam's victory in 1975. Some fled the country overland, hundreds of thousands of others fled by boat, and many died through overcrowded vessels sinking or being overturned in storms or through attacks by pirates, as they would often take their life's wealth with them. Between the years 1975 and 2000, almost 800,000 Vietnamese arrived on the shores of various Southeast Asian nations, and more than a quarter of that figure arrived along Hong Kong's southern sea border, often a journey of 1,500 kilometres. Eighteen months ago, Les Bird, a former Marine police officer based in Hong Kong, published a book with a collection of his photographs and those of eight colleagues with accounts of how they'd spent years at sea on the southern boundary of Hong Kong, tasked with escorting the Vietnamese boats into port. They were unstable boats and rescue missions in heavy seas were common. In this programme, I talked to Les and some of his former colleagues about their experiences. But sometimes there were over 100 people on the back of that boat, even more given to middling how many we were dealing with. So it was very rudimentary. And we hear the voices of former boat people. I, I remember being always afraid. It was just in a constant state of fear and sometimes numbness. Photographs from the book are being shown at an exhibition that opens this weekend in Wan Chai. I'll give details on that at the end of the programme. Les Bird was part of the Marine Police from 1976 until 1997, and when he first sighted Vietnamese craft coming into Hong Kong waters, his camera was quite rudimentary. So on board each police launch we had what's called a Polaroid camera and a Polaroid camera was used for evidence purposes so you would take a photograph of your piece of smuggling evidence and then you press a button and there'd be a, a, the, the, the whole thing would develop in front of your eyes and then you peel it off and you would have a, a, a really grainy black and white photograph. So initially I started to use the launch smuggling evidence camera to take photographs of the uh, different vessels and some of those are in in, in the they, they are they are my first photographs taken so with the red felt tip yeah and what i used to write <laughs> what i used to write on the back was the date and the time i took the photograph and a little bit about what it was about uh, how big the boat was where it had come from how many people were on board, uh, how the makeup was, were male, female and children. And you can see in the book some of that writing that I put on around the edges of each photograph was my record from 1977. But then when more boats came in, I went and bought my own camera and, and, and started to take a lot more photos. During the early years of his marine police career, Les Bird worked as a young inspector at Tayo Police Station on Lantau. It's a hotel now, a lovely white building on a hill. The inspector at Tayo before him was Ross Mitchell, who tells me about when he first came across the early Vietnamese coming into Hong Kong. I was the police officer sent to Tayo, just in my early 20s. I joined Marine Police. I'm not long in Marine Police, got all my tickets and then was sent to, to Manor Police Station in the, in the far southwest corner. Where it sits, it's actually nearer to Macau than it is to Hong Kong. So when we sat in the police station, we were looking directly at the, um, the Gia Lighthouse. Um, we couldn't see Hong Kong at all. It was much further away. And so what that meant for, for us as policemen in those days in Marine Police, our main job was illegal immigration, IIs. Uh, but the IIs came across from China 
they came down through the north across Mears Bay or through the west across um, Deep Bay. Occasionally they'd come in to the east by boat, but it was it was not really that organized at that time. It was individuals that were swimming across, floating across, trying to get across on land. Uh, so all the marine police attention would be in the north and west. And where we were down in the southwest, of the say, opposite Macau, IIs never cropped up on the radar. But if I'm going back to October 1977, I think it was, I was out on a patrol because we used to patrol out into the, to the villages uh, on Lantau. That was our, our main job there, keeping stock with the villagers, making sure things were going all right and feral cows weren't interfering with people and, and what have you. Feral cows? Uh, yeah, well, feral cows were a big problem. The cows on Lantau were uh, a feral. So we, I was out in the hills, we were patrolling, and I, I got back and a jeep had dropped me off right at the bottom of Lantau Island. That's, and then we caught the ferry across to Tayo and we still had another mile or so to walk to the station and i was met by a Ging, a, a woman police constable and she came up to me and she said ah oh, sir um we've got a boatload of ii's have landed i was completely unheard of and i said a boatload of ii's I said yeah they're, they're at the pier down below the station I said but they're a bit strange sir because they don't speak chinese i said the other thing that's strange is their boat i said well what about it I said well it's it's a very strange boat it's a long thin boat and it's got eyes on the front of it like a devil boat. So I had no idea what was going on because in those days, Vietnam was, I mean, the Vietnam War had finished a few years before and our, our association with Vietnam would have been American sailors coming in for R&R, which would predominated all over Hong Kong at that time, but certainly never seen a boat like this before. And as I got there, as I got down to the bottom of the station, it was quite clear there was a boat of refugees there um, probably 20-odd of them, with women, children, men, not too shabbily dressed, shall we say, but clearly they'd been at sea on, on this boat. And a gentleman came up and he approached me and, and shook my hand and said, uh, good morning, sir, or good afternoon, sir. Um, my name is Nguyen, and I've come from Vietnam. So, uh, it was, I mean, there was no question of trying. One of the problems, clearly, with Chinese IIs is that everyone wanted to escape because at that time we ran the... Um, the touch base policy in Hong Kong, where if you made it safely to the city centre, you were safe and you could get an ID card and you carried on living. So rounding up IIs was quite a difficult task because they were always trying to escape and perfectly understandable. They, these had no intention of escaping. They were just a group of desperate people who had come off a boat after a, a very long boat journey. So... And why did they stop at Tayo? Is that the first bit of land right, you hit? Right, yeah, that's right. So I'm talking to the fella, and I, basically, obviously, we need to feed them. They, they were desperate. So my girlfriend at the time took my wallet out of my, my back pocket and raced down to the village and, and bought them crackers and stuff. And uh, it, because it was coming to evening, we'd arranged... The PCs would all be eating, but the whole station ate together uh, in the early evening. So we had a meal on... And I just brought it forward and, and we fed them more with rice and soup and, and greens and what have you. And, you know, in those days, everyone was very sympathetic towards refugees because most of the population had come from refugee or certainly had family members who'd come from refugees. And so they were feeding them and the, the wheels of government were grinding and basically with arranging what have you. But uh, within a fairly short space of time, the vomiting began, uh, first with the children and then with the adults. Oh. And we thought, oh, goodness me, we've got a problem here. Um, and then the doctor came up from the, the village. Uh, he was sent up to have a look. And 
we had to shuffle them all back down onto the boat and and basically they were then taken away into quarantine uh, which always existed for all boats anyway in the quarantine centers in in, in harbor um he said uh, i think we've got a case of cholera here so now you all now to have to come down to my clinic and where he got them from i don't know but he had cholera shots so we that night, we were up till about 11 or 12 o'clock at night with everyone getting cholera shots. It turned out that nobody actually had cholera. This was just purely their reaction to having food and water after such a, a, a journey. And so coming back to your question, as, as I'm talking to the chap, you know, people were engaged in conversations, were sitting, and I said to him, um, you know, how did you get here? And they, they island, well, they coast hopped up. Uh, got away from Vietnam, and I'm saying Hai Phong, but I can't really remember where it could have been Da Nang. Um, and they coast hopped up, and they were stopping off in Chinese places, but were always being shoveled on uh, and shoved on. Uh, and um, I said, well, yeah, but if you, he said, we wanted to come to Hong Kong and, and what have you. I said, yeah, but looking at Macau over there now, and by this time, of course, the lighthouse was flaring up. I said, why on earth didn't you stop there or go to Hong Kong? Um, and he said, well, I was traveling along and we saw the Union Jack. And of course, above every station, we have a big flagpole with the Union Jack flying. And he said, when I saw that, I knew I was safe. Ross Mitchell there from his home in the UK. In the mid-1970s, there was initially just a trickle of these boats coming in. But by the end of 1978, that changed with the arrival of the first of the large people smuggling freighters, the Hui Fong. With the number of people, the, the thousands, the tens of thousands of people leaving Vietnam or trying to escape, obviously the criminal elements in, in, in Vietnam got together and realised that there was some money to be made here. So the people smuggling rackets started out of Vietnam and that was very, very simple. They went off and they purchased these big 3,000, 3,500 tonne freighters that were about to be scrapped and they they would take a fee from each refugee and then cram three, 4,000 people in, in a very, very small uh, cargo holds and then try to convince Hong Kong that they'd been rescued at sea. In fact, they hadn't. They, they'd been put on that ship in a place called Vung Tau, which is uh, the port just outside of uh, Saigon. And they'd hired a crew. They, normally they were Taiwanese. And the crew and the master who was Taiwanese would send a message to Marine Department in Hong Kong saying, I've just rescued 3,000 people from small boats are sinking. Uh, I'm bringing them in. They're all refugees, so, you know, you can take them and of course the ruse was was identified almost immediately um information in in vietnam came out that this was a people smuggling racket so the first one to arrive the first people smuggling freighter to arrive was the hui fong um with i think 3600 people and then that was rapidly followed by the skyluck i think most people who know anything about vietnamese refugees in hong kong would have heard of the skyluck that had uh, I think 2,600 people on board, another similar 3,000-ton freighter. The morning that the first people smuggling freighter arrived on the southern boundary was just before Christmas 1978, and my then operational boss, John Turner, uh, was one of the first men to go on board, followed by several of us over the next few days, but he was the first one on board. 
I was in the Marine District Police off and on throughout my career. That was for 30 years. I, I wasn't a mariner, but I was in Marine and dealing with the uh, Vietnamese refugees. And the problem started in, in the mid-70s. We called them the, the boat people, very tragic uh, conditions. They were coming up in uh, in hundreds, in, in small boats, all the way up from Vietnam, all the way up to to Hong Kong. They thought they would be safe in Hong Kong, but obviously in the South China Sea, it could be very dangerous. And there were there were many, many drowned on, on the way up in small boats. Marine police were, were picking up uh, the, the small boats, contents with, with you know, women and children and getting getting them ashore. That, that went on till the late 70s when some, they were Taiwan businessmen, Singapore businessmen, They had an idea they could make a lot of money out of the refugee influx leaving Vietnam by getting larger old freighters. They bought up several old freighters, about 3,000 tons each, that were really left for scrap. And these were the ships they started using to bring up these poor refugees in in the late 70s. That's when I got involved with the the Weifong. The Weifong was the first of these larger freighters uh, to try and make it up to to Hong Kong. Yes, and it was actually a a major people smuggling exercise. It was, but I was only involved in the immediate involvement. It came a few days before Christmas in December 78. I was Deputy District Police Commander for Marine then. I think it was a weekend, a Saturday, and I was at home. I got a call saying the ship had arrived off Hong Kong and had been refused entry to Hong Kong. Uh, I went in a police launch out, took about an hour to get out to where the Wei Fong was at anchor just off Hong Kong, just on the border of Hong Kong waters. It was a, a Potoi Islands, wasn't it? It was off Potoi Island, yes, that's, that's right. We were the first launch there. Uh, we had no idea what we would find. We had had no information from the Marine Department headquarters uh, they were adamant that the ship could not come into Hong Kong. It had to go to its first port of call, which was in Taiwan, but it wasn't going there. We went alongside. I, I wasn't sure what we were going to find. We went straight up to the bridge, got hold of the captain, who actually gave us a wonderful welcome. He seemed a very, very pleased to see us. <laughs> And the next step was to to open the hatches and look into the hold. I was horrified, horrified to see people in such a such a poor condition. They obviously ne- needed help. Uh, their condition was absolutely terrible, absolutely shocking. The stench was uh, in- indescribable. Uh, you know, five babies had been born on the way up from ah. from Vietnam. And you, and you say you're looking down in the hatches. The stench is indescribable, these poor people who've... How long had they been travelling at that point? They'd been travelling for nearly two weeks from Vietnam waters. What had happened, they paid several US hundred dollars, all paid in gold, to get out to the freighter which was uh, waiting for them in, in Vietnam waters. They all got out in individually and, uh, and, and got on board. I guess they were in a reasonable condition when they got on board, but there was no toilet facilities, no medical facilities and no food and they were in a very bad state. When we found them off Hong Kong, the master refused to go to Taiwan and I could see obviously there was no way I could force him. Uh, I then started getting hold of our Hong Kong government, the uh, police, military, civil administration operations room in uh, 
in in Hong Kong to get to get to get help. So can you describe for me when you went out off the Potoi Islands and you see this Huifong freighter, did you then just stay by it for hours? I was there for, well, several hours until we had helicopters, launches coming out with doctors and nurses and food. We were arranging, as soon as I'd got arrangement for the sick refugees to be taken ashore for, you know, for the treatment of, of the remaining refugees that were sick, that they were getting fed, uh, I'd handed over to other police launches and uh, a, a Royal Naval patrol boat, which which had arrived by then. When it was all in, in hand and be, being dealt with, yes, I, I, I left the scene. John Turner there. At the end of 1978 and throughout 1979, three big freighters came into Hong Kong, uh, people smuggling freighters. You were personally involved with the third, the Senon. Yeah. Purely by chance, the the Huifong came in first at the end of '78, and then that was quickly followed by the uh, the Skylark, and we were dreading others coming in. And then the third one arrived in uh, May 1979. The crew from that, the Taiwanese crew, had obviously learned by reading the newspapers that the crews of the other two ships had been arrested and charged with people smuggling offences and were in prison in Hong Kong, waiting trial. Um, so th what they did was they brought the ship outside of the southern boundary, off Macau. They then arranged for a small boat to pick them up and take their gold, their payment, for bringing these people. There were 1,400 people on the Senon, and they disappeared into Macau, and they left the refugees on board the Senon. They pointed towards western Lantau and they said that's Hong Kong all you've got to do is steer this boat into those waters and the marine police will be there and you'll be looked after and you will all become refugees and everything will be fine the problem was when as they arrived into Hong Kong waters south of Lantau they realized they actually didn't physically know how to stop the ship they could st they figured out how to steer it but couldn't stop it so the first piece of sand or beach that they saw which was Loke 1 on the southern western tip of Lanta, they steered the boat into Loke 1 and at full speed rammed, rammed the beach and it's about a 300 yard long beach and they completely cut it in two with the bows of the ship. The ship went straight up the beach and straight into the undergrowth and then it started to capsize to one side which was a dangerous part. Now uh, my involvement was I just happened to be in a police jeep on the South Lantai Road on the other side of the hill when this happened. So I got a radio call saying there's something happened at Loke 1. Marine police are on the way. If you can get there now, uh, you might be able to help. So I scrambled over the hill onto the beach. I happened to be the first one there. Marine police were still lowering themselves into small boats to come ashore. Um, so there was me and 1,400 people, uh, and I was trying to round them up. And, of course, there were several things to think about. One only the young people had managed to get off, which meant the the older people, m women and children, were still on and they were still in the cargo hold and the ship was tilting over to the starboard side. So it, was, it looked like it might capsize and, and quite possibly some of it sink. So there was that to think about. And also I didn't realise that the, at that time the crew had actually left the ship. So I was looking for the crew. I wanted to arrest the crew because I realised that this was obviously people smuggling. So I was running up and down the beach trying to save people and trying to arrest people and uh, eventually, of course, other marine resources arrived and, and, and helped me out. 
and and then then we we got it all under control. But the thing was, um, they'd been crammed into these cargo holds, and the conditions inside were awful, and a lot of them just couldn't get out on their own. So we had to gradually try and uh, evacuate the ship before it capsized. The extraordinary thing is, you're busy with your 1,400 people there and documenting them, but there's a man who was on the beach, and he remembers you. Yeah, uh, a guy called Kang, Kang Dang. He was a soldier in the South Vietnamese Army and he'd been in hiding in Vietnam um, since 1975, the end of the war. And so now, 1979, he was making a break for it with his, his new young wife, Yen. And he was one of the young ones who managed to get ashore. And he read my first book, A Small Band of Men, about two years ago, in which there's a chapter about the Senon. And he wrote to me and said, I was actually on that beach at the same time as you. And he claims, he recognised, he, he remembered me. He wrote to me and said, uh, I remember you. Um, we stood on the beach uh, 40 years ago at the same time. And uh, since then, we've, we've built up a friendship. And I put his story in the book. And he's introduced me to several other people who were on that ship. And their own stories are in the, in the book too. Caroline Wu was aboard the freighter, the Senon, as a young girl with her mother. I remember it was chaotic. People would start shouting. There was just rushing, getting off, people rushing, getting off the boat. The younger, the like, those that are strong and capable can swim, they would jump the ship because the instruction was for them to jump and to get on shore so that they will be accepted by Hong Kong because we do not want to go back again. That ship cannot, it cannot sail again. It will not survive that journey. It cannot go anymore. This is it for us. So they, we were instructed that if you are capable, jump and swim ashore. And I remember climbing down the staircase. It was rustic, it was old. And then there was people following behind me and then it was just rushing, rushing. So you're on a metal ladder? People. Yeah, it was a ladder. So I start going down this ladder and all of a sudden it just stopped it just ended it's like it's broken i was hanging off the side of the ship and um and i didn't want to go further my cousin was in the water at that time she told me to just come on down just keep going and you know jump and actually i didn't want to and then she said it's okay i got you just jump it's okay you know, and then I looked up and I see all these people are coming down. I have to, I have to, so I let go. And then I just kind of blacked out at that point. I don't remember what happened. The next thing I remember was that I heard a faint sound of her, my name. She called my name faintly. I kind of heard it and then I didn't respond. And then she called me again. And then she shook my hand, which was around her neck. And then I woke up from that, and then I found myself in the middle of what, halfway to the beach and halfway from the ship, because I looked back and I saw we were halfway in the middle of this water and I was on her back. And she told me to just hang on tight. It's interesting, some 40 years on, how Les Bird's book, Along the Southern Boundary, a Marine Police Officer's Frontline Account, of the Vietnamese boat people and their arrival in Hong Kong has resulted in several reunions. Les has been twice to California, where there are large populations of Vietnamese, especially in the Los Angeles area. His photographs are on display at a museum there, 
and will then move to another museum in Cleveland. He's met many former refugees who came through Hong Kong and have found in Les someone who they can tell about those experiences decades ago. During the initial years, it was South Vietnamese who came to Hong Kong, often ethnic Chinese, but in later years, people who were North Vietnamese began also to flee Vietnam and come to Hong Kong, sometimes seeking shelter in mainland China on their way here. Former Marine Police Officer Peter Connolly looks back. How did you feel sort of processing lots of people who are trying to come in often in, you know, malnutrition, dehydration, diseased? Uh, yeah, well, carefully. It's not easy on the back of a boat. Police launches we have are not massive boats. There are two which are a lot bigger. Police launch one, which I was based on, uh, was it's about 120, 130 feet long. It's got a back areas we used to sit them out on. But the toilet, all the facilities there are for a crew of, say, 20-odd people. We could sometimes have over 100 people on the back of that boat, even more, given to how many we were dealing with. So it was very rudimentary. I was in the wheelhouse, and they were dealing with another a big boat of... Uh, of Vietnamese and my station sergeant came and said you better come and have a look at this sir so often I went down you know, and had a look at it and there's this bloke standing there with his bag and, and he opened it up and there was a skeleton in there a full skeleton and he also then produced a set of, of American GI dog tags he said he had, had this thing saying this was an, an MIA and everything like this so um, <laughs> that got me a bit slightly flawed slightly I think he Oh, this is this is a new one. I haven't had this one before. <laughs> if ever, ever I had a dealings that it was been totally flabbergasted by having someone a whole skeleton in a bag presented <laughs> to me and and uh, and some sort of dog tests. Obviously, it was referred down the line. The American consulate took it over. I never really, obviously, I don't really think it was an MIA, and you could pick up probably dog tags in Vietnam fairly easily given uh, the amount of American troops are in there. Yeah, but what do you do with the skeleton? Well, they we handed it all over. I mean, the Americans wanted it. Anything to do with MIAs? I mean, got, there's still a lot of MIAs in, in, in Vietnam, as they well know. You mentioned that to the American uh, authorities and everything like that, and they're on the case. Peter Connolly there. In the book, former officer Alistair Watson shows some superb photos of the Vietnamese junks. He also had a bit of a surprise one day while on duty. Now, Alistair Watson, one of his photographs alongside those magnificent junks is actually a hand grenade in a basket. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you think about it, people leaving a war-torn area, there'll be lots and lots of guns and um, all sorts of things uh, lying around. And if you were a father who were going to try and take your kids, your children and your grandparents 1,000 sea miles in an open boat and you knew you'd heard about Thai pirates... What would you do? I mean, I would. I, I'd go and try and find myself a weapon, and I'd put it in the boat, and, and if I was attacked, then I'd, I could possibly use it to defend myself and my family. Of course, when they arrived in Hong Kong, they didn't want to jeopardise their refugee status, so they would usually throw, throw, throw the weapons overside uh, as they approached Hong Kong waters because they, they, they didn't want to be caught. But some of them used to forget. I mean, they, 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 you know, they're traumatised, they're, they're tired, uh, they're excited about, about making it, and they would just forget. So the weapon would be handed over. Uh, so if, you had, if you're handed a grenade, though? Yeah, that was a surprise for Alistair. Um, he, took a <laughs> he did recover quite quickly and take a photograph of the grenade, which is in the book. Um, he, was, uh, he was handed a live uh, Russian-made hand grenade uh, with the pin still in it, um, and uh, he, he quickly he quickly disposed of that. But fortunately, he took a photograph of it first. So, if, for any sort of like metal detecting divers, 
there is this whole area ahead of the where the southern boundary starts, so on that corner of Tayo, where there could be this whole cache of Vietnam War-era weaponry. Yeah, it could be. I would probably think there would be, actually. Some accounts there from the former Marine police officers and former refugee Caroline Wu, who shared their photographs and stories with Les Bird for his book, Along the Southern Boundary. Les is showing some of those photographs at an exhibition in Wan Chai at the East Pro Gallery at 223 Gloucester Road. The exhibition at the East Pro Gallery is on until May the 18th. Next Saturday, May the 13th, Les will be sharing some stories from the book at 3.30pm. If you'd like to go along, then you can reserve a seat by emailing the gallery at info at eastprophoto.com. That's info at eastprophoto.com. I've also put this information on the Hong Kong Heritage Facebook page, so do take a look. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.